is the Storymobile podcast. We are a solar-powered moving art space that travels to events and through neighborhoods to collect your stories. The St. Paul Almanac book was created in 2005 and has since been released annually. The goal is to bring together the diverse community of St. Paul through literary arts. The Almanac is a meeting place for sharing stories and artwork of our community. This year, the St. Paul Almanac released their 11th volume, On a Collected Path. As part of a reading festival, authors have gathered at various venues throughout St. Paul to read their fabulous work. On Tuesday, May 16th, readers gathered at Common Good Books to read their pieces from St. Paul Almanac's Volume 11, On a Collected Path. Hello and welcome to the St. Paul Almanac reading. We've had a series of these and they've been really wonderful. So I'm glad to see everyone who came out tonight. It's a nice uh, full crowd, so thanks a lot for coming. I'd like to acknowledge Common Good Books for hosting us and also Kimberly Nightingale, she's standing in the back, who is the in charge of St. Paul Almanac. And Dave Stein, who's in charge of Cracked Walnut, who's the literary, um, it's a literary group that puts together this, or helps with it, and in any case, so check them out on, online, and uh, we're doing some summer readings also, Cracked Walnut. And St. Paul Almanac is selling their books, obviously, and if you haven't seen it, it's a pretty gorgeous book. It's got a lot of great art and photography. It's got prose and poetry, all kinds of interesting things. All right, we're going to get started. My name is Donna Isaac, and I am pleased and honored to host tonight. Uh, we have, I believe, eight. Wait a minute. I think we have more than that. Nine total. We have nine total readers. I'm going to read a little bit, too, at the end. Uh, so each reader will read his or her piece from the almanac. Uh, and if there's a little time, might read something extra. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be fun, too. Our first reader is Jalu Wang. She's a filmmaker based in Minneapolis. She speaks Mandarin Chinese. She writes everything down while she can. She looks at the clouds instead of her feet mm -hmm. and keeps the camera on at all times. Welcome, Jalu. A little context about this is a uh, if people have the book, I think it's on like page 163. Um, um, it, this piece kind of came out of like my creative stuckness, I was stuck for, for a bit, and I went to a restaurant with my friend, um, and he just prompted me to talk to a stranger who was reading a book in this restaurant. And as a natural introvert, I had to go through a lot of inhibitions and resistance. And I finally went up to him and, and talked to him. And um, afterwards, my friend just like gave me the notebook and just said, read a letter to him um, that as like a writing exercise. So here comes the poem. Um, I guess a little, um, Something else is that English is my second language, um, so I always feel really caught between the two, my mother tongue and also English. And I was just 
strolling and around the bookstore and picked up a book and and there's a quote that I, it really just like jumped to me at the moment is that um, I have to learn to resign to the lifelong sadness of never being satisfied to to really express with the two languages but here's the attempt um, dear guy at the restaurant Thank you for showing me your book and your inspiration. It has me now pondering about the poetics of space. When I was biking alone on, on Marshall Street, I had a sudden flashback of my hometown in China. The sandy <coughs> pavement smells like exhaust. Tractors roaring by with black smoke. That was at least 10 years ago. I'm still the same, biking alone in traffic. People don't really change much after all. We were all in different spaces before coming into this restaurant. What are the choices that led any of us to this place? Is it up to my mother when she was pondering about an abortion? Is it up to my father when he decided to slap my mother across the room? Is it up to me, given the option, to escape a militant educational system? Is it up to my stepdad, who had lived a very different life until he met my mother at a Chinese restaurant? Is it up to wanting something familiar to eat in the middle of the Minnesota winter? Dear guy at the restaurant, what was your journey leading up to this moment? It feels like a lifetime has passed. Our next reader is A. Everett Beek, and she is a scholar of Latin and Greek poetry. She has a PhD from the University of Minnesota and a BA from McAllister College, and she has taught at the University of St. Thomas. Beyond her academic publications, she has published a poem in the St. Paul Sidewalk Poetry Contest. Welcome, Everett. Um, I'm, I'm going to start by reading the poem that I have in the almanac, um, and uh, it's called Idiom to Lose One's Job. It's uh, rather gloomy, as you may guess. I wrote it after losing my job. Um, so I'm going to read that one first and then do two short ones that are slightly less, uh, slightly less uh, gloomy. Anyway, it's, uh, it's on page 226 if you have the almanac in front of you. Well, idiom, to lose one's job. I told my friend I lost my job, as if I had left it on the train or dropped it in the grocery store, then <laughs> spent all afternoon calling around places I might have left it, maybe posted signs on the lampposts around the neighborhood. I said I lost my job because I didn't want to say my boss declined to renew my contract because, well, she didn't say why, because it's at will employment, she can dismiss me if she doesn't like the color of my shoes, and I have no recourse to demand a satisfying answer. All I can do is pack up my office while I stew in speculation over whether it was my performance, or my pacing, or my accent, or my shoes. You see, we have these concise, mercifully conventionalized phrases so we can explain a difficult situation without bursting into tears, possibly while still at the office, possibly in front of your former co-workers, possibly while panicking over what you're going to say to your children or how you're going to pay the gas bill. 
It helps to dismiss it as some casual inconvenience that anyone might mention over dinner, something that could have been prevented by a single moment of closer attention or better foresight, something that doesn't imply a glaring, insurmountable flaw in your person. I lost my gloves. I lost my phone. I lost my job. But this transparent circumlocution didn't stop me from bursting into tears when I told my friend. So the next one, uh, the next one is called Dinner Out, The Dropped Glass. And this one, uh, this one also is written in a restaurant. For, uh, <laughs> uh, so when the shatter sang around the room, and every head was turned, and all the din receded just a moment, I was shocked that such a potent silence should arise from something so mundane as breaking glass. Or was it just the tension in the room, a common breath we took, and which dispersed as soon as we had seen the danger past. That night we all had delicate desires so lightly balanced that we feared to smash. <laughs> and the, uh, the last one I have is called The Unfathomable, the Unfathomable Distance Across the Table. I wrote this about a friend of mine, uh, someone I've known for many, many years, who uh, uh, does not like to be touched. No. Your words were the most solid part of you, solid enough to cast a shadow on my clear-as-glass expression. Still your hands I can't substantiate, nor shoulders yet can I confirm aren't phantoms, nor your hair, as weighted down as silver as it is, could I affirm has mass to speak of. How am I to navigate the air between us when you're not there? How can I conjure you? I need you to be real. All I find is your voice of dark blue flannel on my ear and distant eyes on my down-feathered mind. Wonderful. Our third reader is Norita Dittburner Jex. She writes, only a health crisis in the family a year ago could have induced her to move out of St. Paul, where she has lived and taught and walked all her life. She has published four books of poetry, the latest in 2014, Stopping for Breath from Noden Press. Now she can see the St. Paul Cathedral and the high bridge from her window. So that's good. Welcome, Norita. I can when I, um, I come into St. Paul a lot and I just adore the streets. It is, I mean, when you've lived in a place all your life, it's really hard, but I, I am only across the bridge. Um, <laughs> and speak, because we talked about the river, I'm gonna read this, my, um, the poem that's in the book last, and I'll read this one first. It's called When Leaf Buds Open on the Trees. And I, I live in sight of this urban wilderness of trees. And as you know, it's just been splendid to see it happen the last two weeks. So this is When Leaf Buds Open on the Trees. A soft green appears, and if it rains then hard, the young leaves drink it in without hesitation, and even the bark of the most ordinary tree is erotic, dark after rain. The branches stand out, outlined in black like my childhood drawings, an early fascination with structure, with contrast, the bark against the shine of leaves. 
Even when the trees bush out, fulsome with leaves, it stays with me. The intricate fretwork, the road clear, right up to the top, the tree revealing itself. <clears throat> and the poem uh, in the book is on page three. It has pride of place. It is the first poem in the book. <laughs> and um, I, I'm so happy to read it tonight with Mother's Day so close because this is in honor of my mother, Doris Fisher Ditburner, uh, Mrs. Mrs. D, as her neighbors called her. And um, it's about that old, the old clotheslines, which you don't see anymore. And I understand there are places where you can't move if you have... You can't have a clothesline. Um, but we had a clothesline and so did all our neighbors. So Monday, wash day, it's on page three. <coughs> Ma stirs the cauldron with a stick, feeds each piece to the ringer, which snaps into reverse, whirling like the devil. Possessed, she says. When the first load is ready, she carries the basket weighty with water out of the darkness into the backyard where she hangs them in elaborate order. Shirts on the first line, starched as suitors. Dresses, dignified skirts on the second. But on the third line, in the center, she hangs the underwear. Where it will never be seen from the street ample and white, it will dry soft between the lines of stiffening linen and the first defense of the shirts. In my mother's government, small things are protected. The devil lives in the washer. <laughs> Our next reader is Judy Hawkinson. And she supplies a short um, bio here. She quotes Shakespeare, in this hope I live. And she writes, in this hope and love and beauty I live. Welcome, Judy. Thank you. I'm going to read one piece. It's my piece in the almanac. And I just want to show you, this is, I'm just so pleased with the illustration for it. It's the most beautiful book that I've ever seen, frankly, and they are for sale. <laughs> so um, it's and just as a by way of introduction, I have a transgender son, and I did a lot of writing during his physical transition about my transition. So when I told him it was published, he said, "Oh, you wrote about me." I said, "No, I wrote about me." <laughs> no offense. <laughs> so it's my transgender Easter story. When it was silent, I laid in bed in St. Paul, and I thought about Mary on her donkey in Jerusalem. Large and pregnant, I felt my baby girl kicking and turning, and I would reach out my hand to her to cradle her little body and keep her safe. And Mary, pregnant with her baby, with her baby boy kicking and turning, looked for refuge for her baby a trough, a pallet of hay. Mary is my people. With her bold strength, she held her dying son. And I thought of her 
when I changed my son's bandages and whispered farewell to my daughter I loved so well. She soldiers on and whispers farewell to her son she has loved so well. I have loved you well, we whisper together. Like my own, her beloved emerged from her womb, bloodied and bruised, and in blood and bruise, he emerged again. Like mine, born again. I walk in her footsteps, I wear her scarf and rags, and sorrow and grief and hope and love and love. I lean into her and accept her hand, so we will soldier on together. We will lean together in this desert. Thank you. Our next reader is Susan Spindler. She has been writing poetry for many years, often using writing to understand, reflect, protest, and be in awe of the world in which we live. She is a nurse, an educator, and an avid golfer, biker, and swimmer. Her family includes two grown children and her dog, Annie. Welcome, Susan. So my poem, Night Nurse, is on page 240, and I have to second Judy's exclaiming about the beauty in this book. I never dreamed. I got my poem published, and I just thought, Oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> so thank you, St. Paul Almanac, and thank you, Common Books. It just feels wonderful to be here amongst the best poetry stash in the whole of the city. <coughs> so, Susan, can you put the microphone a little closer to you? Out more? Yeah, thank you. Is, is that better? Okay, okay, thank you for asking that. He's going to turn it up. Turn it again. Is this better? For, yes. Now I can hear that I'm better, yes. Thank you for asking. Okay. So my poem is Night Nurse, and um, I, it, it's not, this is not a poem about me, um, although I am a nurse, and although I have worked nights. But um, more it's a reflection on the inner space about um, the objectivity that is required in nursing and um, the vulnerability um, about viewing something and documenting flow charts and the hard work of really <coughs> looking at something that you're seeing, someone that you're seeing go through something. So, thus, night nurse. 11, 11 p.m., start of shift. No fresh coffee, stale and cold, a film crawling from the edge of the pot. <coughs> Admission in handcuffs. Blood seeps through the bandage on his neck. His eyes glazed. No tears, no voice. Slippage, the anchor that moored him to life gone missing. The search. No knives, blades, ropes, scissors, belts, glass, pins, pens, matches. Check, check, the quiet room. No pillows, sheets, vents, drapes, doors, springs and toilet paper roll or mattress. Check, coffee break. She watches her heart slide down the sink with the cold coffee, the last of it clinging to the metal drain rim, wanting, not wanting to take the plunge. 
15 minute checks, breathing, sleeping, alive, breathing, sleeping, alive, 7 a.m., end of shift. She vows to leave the stories there, each one a jagged shard in a fractured life. Tylenol, Drano, Ativan with vodka, Clorox. I love you, Mom, but your life will be lived better without me. Can't get Mom's blood out of the car. Into the morning, she remembers to retrieve her heart, but how to keep it safe. She knows she can no longer buy red roses, see wrists, and not expect to see transfer scars. Cross the bridge without wondering how many. She drinks in the morning air, sharp and tart, her thirst, a hard rock and a parched throat. Thank you. Our next reader is David Lindale. David grew up in Michigan, where at a young age, he began writing about the world around him. He eventually left snowy Michigan for the warmer, sunny climate of Minneapolis. <laughs> he is the author of the novel, Watertown Fires. And welcome, David. It does feel a lot warmer here. <laughs> um, this is uh, something I wrote, it's called uh, Night Rider. It's on page 160 if you want to follow along. Um, I guess the, just a quick little backup about this story is that um, I would always be walking to the store and I would see uh, these guys like riding their bikes in the middle of the night and uh, just something that adults don't do. But then I kind of looked and I was like, you know, that, that seems like that would be kind of fun. So I, this is the story about me uh, doing it. <coughs> On Friday, July 3rd, I went for a night bike ride through the city. I've been wanting to do this for a year, ever since I saw some guys tearing through the city at night on their bikes. I wondered how exhilarating it would feel to ride haphazardly through the city at night. So I did it. And it was amazing. The city is a different place at night. It's quiet, sleepy, and peaceful, but there's definitely an edge to it. It's the resting heartbeat of an animal, an uncertainty that isn't dangerous, but it makes you a little uncomfortable. The night I went, the moon was blood red and it was quite the sight. I could smell it, I could hear it, I could feel it. Since it was the eve of the 4th, fireworks were being shot off throughout city neighborhoods. I paused for a moment to look at a fireworks show on the east side of the city. I saw the night riders and there was kind of a weird solidarity, but that was just probably in my head. <laughs> Riding through the night, Riding at night slows everything down, including yourself. I could hear, I could feel the noise and clutter in my mind being stilled by the night. Calming, clearing. It was just me on my bike in the middle of the city, in the dark. And I wasn't scared, only curious. What's that over there? What's that sound? What's that smell? I saw a young brother skateboarding down Kellogg. Homeless people at the depot. The cologne and perfume of a couple walking downtown. Mirrors Park and people having a late dinner outside on the patio. A crowded gas station on 7th Street and a packed church on the east side. I rode to the top of the city, to Indian Mountains Park, and paused to watch the city sparkle. There was a lot going on that night, but yet the city felt still. I rode 20 miles across the city that night. It's funny how you can feel so alive, 
while everyone else is sleeping. Our next reader has a very short um, introduction. Uh, M. Wright likes the way the wind trims the tall grass. Welcome, M. Wright. Hello, thanks for having me. Um, it is honestly such a privilege to be in this book. If you don't have a copy, pick one up. I've been making my way slowly through it uh, since I received my own copy, and it's just incredible as you're hearing today. Um, so I have two poems that I'll read, um, and this one's uh, my poem that's published in the Almanac. It's called Of a Time, and it's uh, uh, likewise inspired by a, uh, a night in this city. Um, damp hours dried by coexistence, these trumpet calls reverberate through century-old buildings, but not everyone can follow the horns. So a few of us linger in the empty square, dry to the onlooker, but we have soul. Strung up in alleyways, laundry lady shouting, man giving man money for an act, the act of giving for the act of busking. We reward ourselves for our humanity, even those of us who can't sing. Thank you. And I have one more poem. Um, in April, I was um, lucky enough to have a chapbook published with Ghost City Press, uh, based in um, Buffalo, New York. And um, the chapbook is called Dear Dementia, and it's um, dedicated to my late grandmother, who I, I lost um, to dementia. And so uh, this poem is um, sort of meant to linguistically embody um, what it would be like on a, a typical visit. It's called Please describe these photographs. It smells like dawn. The years have become a collection of tasks. When the brain is confronted with memory loss, it copes by projecting the present on the past. <coughs> Georgia eats her ice cream bar, saturating her mind in cream memories. All of life is dawn and an ice cream sandwich. A neighbor must have come by. The door looks happier than she left it, and a neighbor must have come by. The door looks happier than she left it. Was this morning that she had ice cream with a neighbor must have come by. The door looks happier than she left it. Georgia doesn't understand the language her doctor is speaking. She must have come by. The door looks happier than she left it. All these lights are collections of tasks projecting memories on the wall of her neighbor's door looks happier than she left it. He tells her he loves her, and he's made sandwiches for lunch. Georgia looks out her window. The cars turn their lights on and off, projecting ice cream through the picket fence slits, and her past is quickly becoming the door looks happier than she left it. Our eighth reader is Mike Elliott. Mike grew up in West St. Paul, Yay. I know. My husband grew up there and has had homes on St. Paul's west side and in Maplewood. He now resides up north on the lake near Jacobson, Minnesota, where he is planning his 28th annual canoe trip to the BWCAW. In the summer, he enjoys teaching his young grandchildren how to jump off the dock, paddle his canoe, and catch bluegills. The only ashes under his big cedar are from his former dog, Scooter. Welcome, Mike. 
Thank you. Um, my main project is a novel I'm working on that also involves St. Paul the West Side called Escaping Limbo. God is willing in 18 months. I hope to be reading from that here at Common Good Books. But the background for Grandpa's last trip was a Halloween party. And I noticed an urn on my neighbor's mantle. And I said, is this a prop? And it wasn't a prop. There was somebody in there. So hence the, um, the uh, grandpa's uh, last trip. And um, I know today in the loft and the courses I do and things that people think everything's a memoir. I've had three people that read this. Oh my gosh, I didn't know your grandfather was blind. So here's the story. A Catholic priest on St. Paul's North End once said, a man born blind from birth will never know the meaning of darkness because he has never experienced light. No one knew what to do with my grandfather, Cliff Coatney, after he died. Blind since birth, Grandpa Cliff did not believe much in going to Mass. He claimed he was spiritual, but not religious. Too much of religion is about raising money, not about worshiping God, he told me one day. Once he even hit a Bible banger with his cane when the man told him, you know, God don't give you nothing you can't handle. <laughs> Grandpa's frustration was not about his lack of sight, but rather with the way some reacted to it, all awkward, full of pity. He married his blind sweetheart, my grandmother, the day after they both turned 16. She was a sight for sore eyes, Grandpa joked, but she sure did smell good. <laughs> my grandfather loved teaching high school civics and politics. The first Tuesday of every summer month, he walked to his bank, returning to make bag lunches for a Mississippi River shore fishing trip, and he quizzed me on government. My job was to listen, fold his new bills. Ones were left unfolded, fives creased crosswise, and tens lengthwise. The U.S. should do like Ireland, make them all different sizes so us blind folks don't get screwed, he said. He even cornered Senator Humphrey after a parade and lobbied him on changing the dimensions of paper money. They both parted laughing. My grandfather died sitting in his easy chair, listening to a Prairie Home Companion, his favorite radio show. Mom followed his instructions and had him cremated. We threw a party, complete with his favorites. Plenty of Jameson whiskey, Cheetos, and Patsy Cline music. <laughs> his urn sat in our family room for weeks. At Thanksgiving, all of my relatives labored over what to do with my grandfather's ashes. We could put them in our gardens, Cliff's younger sister suggested, or maybe at the lake under the big cedar where he sat and listened to my, us grandkids jump off the dock, my older sister suggested. Actually, Grandpa told me where he wanted to go once, I said. Where would that be, Mom asked. Well, we were playing poker, just the two of us. He let me have a beer, and he had a few. He insisted he didn't want his ashes in a cemetery or on a mantle. Just tell him to throw me on the freeway when I'm gone, he said. <laughs> Everyone was smiling. Well, it's all settled then, Mom said. After pie, we all get in the van, head west, and empty my dad's ashes between the Dale and Snelling Avenue exits. <laughs> Grandpa wanted them on I-94 because it went all the way from St. Paul to Billings, and he always wanted to visit Montana. Our next reader is Janet Lunder Hannafin. She grew up on a South Dakota farm 
transplanted herself to St. Paul for college and grew deep roots. Her writing has appeared in local and metro-wide publications. She and her husband have two children and five grandchildren, all above average, <laughs> and enjoy the companionship of two very fine cats. Thank you, Janet, and I apologize again. Well, in addition to that introduction, I will say that when my friend Judy and I, 55 years ago, were in this very building, it was not a wonderful bookstore. We knew it as The Spoon, short for The Greasy Spoon. And that was where you ordered pizza that could be delivered to your dorm, not to your dorm room, but to the dorm. And they also had, I think it was chicken dumpling soup, which on the first day was really good, the second day pretty good, and then throughout the week, it got more and more and more watery until it was finally all gone and then they would start anew. So we had many enjoyable times here. And little did I know when we were sitting in one of our favorite booths that I would be here reading about my adventures at McAllister tonight. So this is called The Tiger in the Bell Tower. If you were all expecting poetry, I'm sorry, this is not. <laughs> okay. I had my chance and I blew it more than once. So I never got to be a real co-ed. I fell in love with McAllister College the first time I saw those ivy-decked brick buildings. If you come from a little South Dakota farm town, St. Paul was London, Paris, Mecca, and realistically about as far away as I could hope to get. <laughs> In the fall of 1961, our senior high school class went on a field trip to Minneapolis, traveling on two rickety former Greyhound buses owned by our Lutheran boarding school. One was rumored to have no brakes. The other added extra seating down the center aisle by putting a row of ancient folding chairs along the aisle for stragglers who didn't board in time to get a real seat. Mr. Peterson, our bus driver, math teacher, principal, knew that I had an interest in McAllister and had pretty decent grades. Followed by a Chevy station wagon driven by two female chaperones who couldn't stand the din on the regular group transport, Mr. Peterson led the unlikely caravan through the pre-I-94 city streets <clears throat> across the mighty Mississippi River and along Summit Avenue until we got to the campus and then back and forth through the campus, down Snelling, right on Grand, left on McAllister Street, right on Lincoln, right again on Cambridge, back to Grand, and then south on Snelling, past the Student Union, and what I would later learn were the men's dorms, the gym, and the field house. Mr. Peterson made one of the boys give up his front row window seat so that I could see everything. My mind was made up, McAllister or die. <laughs> the stars aligned, and I do not say that lightly. My mother's best friend ever since kindergarten just happened to be the Dean of Women. So though I was heading into the abyss, my mom had a direct line to in loco parentis. <laughs> I learned even before coming to McAllister that to be an official co-ed, a college girl had to be kissed by an upperclassman under the bell tower in front of the library. Then, to announce the deed, the fellow would ring the bell. 
I couldn't wait to write my high school friends about the experience I was sure would happen soon. But during freshman week, I learned a second bit from the, of college lore from the sophomore girls who lived on our floor. A man-eating tiger had starved to death on the McAllister campus. <laughs> Great. <laughs> a sophomore boy invited me to the homecoming dance, and the kiss could have happened that night, but there was a line at the bell tower, and that darn bell rang and rang. <laughs> As a freshman, I had to be in the dorm by midnight or get campused, a punishment that would keep me locked up in my dorm for three or four weekends. The sophomore wasn't worth that. <laughs> and my dreams of a romantic introduction to co-edhood were put on hold. Late one winter afternoon, I was trudging back to the dorm from English class, held in the old Quonset huts that would be replaced a couple of years later by the Janet Wallace Fine Arts Center, when a voice beside me said, you're heading to the grill for a cup of coffee, right? Really? There was, I can only call him, a college man looking at me and smiling. Um, yeah? He fell into step beside me. I knew it, he said. I am too. On the short walk to the grill, he told me his name, Bruce, and that he was a senior majoring in economics. I must have told him it was my dad's birthday because he informed me that we would have cake and he ordered two black coffees and a chocolate cupcake, which we shared. Then he said he'd walk me back to my dorm. But he steered me out of my way on a bitterly cold afternoon toward the bell tower. <laughs> Are you a co-ed, he asked. No. Well then, he was already reaching for the rope. But dang, it was light out and there were people everywhere, and my history professor was coming out of the library. <laughs> I don't think so, I said. He smiled, and it was a beautiful, friendly smile that I would have loved to try on. Sure? Yeah. He walked me to my dorm. Tell your dad happy birthday, he said. Thanks for the coffee. I know where you live. I'll see you around. But he never did. By spring, I was watching much more carefully for the man-eating tiger, whom I suspected was getting pretty hungry by that time, than for college men. And I never did become a co-ed. <laughs> I have one piece in the uh, almanac. Again, they are for sale right up front, 1995, beautiful book. You have to have it. This one's called To Grandma Dolores, Suffering from Lewy Body Dementia. Lewy Body Dementia is a widely underdiagnosed disease. It's often confused with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. The uh, discoverer of the disease, Dr. Friedrich Lewy, discovered abnormal protein deposits that disrupt brain function. It also disrupts thinking, behavior, perception. One of the effects can be experiencing complex visual hallucinations. So this poem has a little bit about that in there. 
and Grandma Dolores used to live on the east side. Remember the good times we had on Magnolia Avenue, where all the St. Paul streets were named after flowers? Yours was the only pink house on the block. Christmas visits were particularly special. Snow boots by the door, cookers bubbling with spaghetti sauce, the secret recipe Rose Totino had shared, a rec room filled with ripped Christmas wrappings, and a silver tree that rotated and played Oh Holy Night. <laughs> Remember that New Year's Eve party when Grandpa dressed up like the New Year's baby, sporting a diaper and a golden sash? He used to chase us around the house, snapping false teeth in hand. That was a little scary. Remember the beauty of your summer garden, zinnias, snapdragons, and gladiolas? Despite your love of pretty things, I learned you were not always very happy. What made you so sad? Was it not getting to go to school like your little sister Margie, riding the streetcar to pick rags rather than to read books? Was it your sad name or having eight children with a husband who liked his bump of Fleischmann's and trips to Lenway's lounge? In later years, your love for Frank was like a color you wore upon your dress. I happen to know that he could be a hard man to love, especially with a shot glass in hand. You cried after Grandpa passed, wishing you could go too. Now you live in a center called Evergreen. Your lazy boy has a broken footrest, and your eyes, once bright as a winter-fed spring, stare blankly, ancient cataracts sparking like a sputtering lamp. I hope you like the tiny manger scene I brought you from the Vatican. I enjoyed our conversation, which seemed to flow like yarn once flew between your knitting needles. It was nice walking down to the lunchroom with you. Everyone in Evergreen seemed kind, even though the fellow with the Roy Orbison sunglasses tried to steal your banana cake. I'm glad you enjoyed the vegetable soup. Wasn't that funny when that one woman tried to take my coat and followed me to your room? She also tried to follow me out, insisting her husband was bringing the car around. Don't forget, though, that Grandpa has been gone now some 25 years, so you could not have seen him singing off-key in a church service while the Lutherans drank near beer and a nurse served cookies. Also, I really don't think that a nurse would threaten you with a kick in the teeth. <laughs> I'm so sorry you thought you saw a baby's head wrapped in a sweater in the sink or that you saw Frank sticking his head in a mailbox. How scary. Be assured that these are imaginings, not real. Remember too, my mom, your eldest girl, is also gone about four years now. She's laid to rest at the Fort Snelling Cemetery. Please don't worry about the terrorist you see on TV. No need to keep cutting your phone cord. I was real glad to see you, Grandma, because I love you. Remember, some things you think you see aren't real, but I am and you are. Like the Velveteen Rabbit, a story we once read, your love makes me come alive. Thank you. I thought I would read one more just to close this out because I, I found this poem that I had written on has an allusion to Garrison Keillor since we're in his bookstore, so I thought I'd read this one. And it's a little lighter than the last one. 
Small talk. These damn things are supposed to be alphabetized, but they're not, says the harried lady in front of the grocery store spice rack. I then help her find Jamaican jerk seasoning. At the baby shower in the French bistro, I make small talk with an out-of-town guest who tells me she is from Virginia. I used to live in Virginia, too. Whereabouts are you? Tawano, outside of Williamsburg. You probably never heard of it, she says. A lady with glasses offers the following. I never order salads in restaurants. I'll be in the bathroom five minutes later. That might be an example of TMI, I think. The expecting mother tells the table, I'd like to name the baby Laura or Lauren. Beautiful day today, snow later, says the shopper with a little dog. At the casino, a man with a walker asks me, what are you reading? The last full measure about the Minnesota 1st Regiment in the Civil War. Oh, my great-great-great-grandfather named Holy fought in this regiment. Oh, then you have a famous legacy, I say. Oh, no, he laughs. He was just a peon, but once I helped Kirby Puckett change a flat tire, and he gave me an autographed baseball bat. That's about the closest I've come to fame. We'll see what happens when you're a good person, I tell him. At the New Year's communal dinner, a lady with her daughter tells me, we're going to see three doors down. We're just beginning our celebration. It's funny, I had just read an article by Garrison Keeler who says we have lost the art of small talk and writes about chatting with a fellow in Okeechobee, Florida, who asks Keeler, how do you like that car, in reference to a rented Kia? Keeler says most people today don't dabble in small talk, being too busy staring at phones or electronic devices. It's ironic then that I actually encountered people who in fact did not mind a little small talk, even though I did have to interrupt the chattering New Year's mom with a basket of past rolls because she was so busy taking a selfie of her daughter and herself. Finally, noticing the bread, she looked startled and said, I guess we better pay attention. Yes, I think, attention is really what we need. Thank you. Well, thanks again to all our wonderful readers and for uh, common, common Good Books and to the St. Paul Almanac. And thanks for coming. Have a great evening. To hear more stories, learn more about Storymobile, and to find out where we'll be pedaling off to next, visit storymobile.org.